KZSU Stanford University's FM radio station broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast featuring in-depth, one-on-one interviews with mission-driven entrepreneurs, renowned thought leaders, and game changers committed to ideas, innovation, and getting the heck out of the building. Our radio show and podcast illuminates the struggle, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes game changers bring to industries, organizations, and lives. Hosted by Tom DiOro, Principal of Accurate, and retired Colonel Pete Newell, CEO of BMNT. Thank you, Charlotte. Hey, for our test today, please welcome Ian Cinnamon. Ian is the president and co-founder of the artificial and intelligence security and defense company Synapse Technology. Ian Cinnamon started programming in Java at age seven, for real. I think it might have been nine, but... (laughs) (laughs) He published a programming textbook at age 16 and developed best-selling iPhone apps. I'm almost afraid to keep reading this. (laughs) Then he founded Synapse Technology, a startup that uses artificial intelligence to help security checkpoint screening systems detect weapons. This technology is currently being used in courthouses, office buildings, schools, and airports around the world. For more information, you can visit www.synapsetechnology.com. Wow, Ian. So, so I, I don't even know where to start with you. So let's 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 start with the early child at seven. Coding? Uh, come on. <laughs> I. Uh, it's funny. It actually was, started. Was Java even invented back then? Uh, I it certainly was. It okay. certainly was. Barely, but it was definitely out there. Um, no, it all started out actually. I used to love playing video games, um, as many great stories about computers do start out. And I happened to get bored of the video games I was playing, and I really wanted to make my own video games. So I decided uh, to try to research how to do that, and there was this thing called programming that I had to learn. So I went ahead and uh, started teaching myself how to program. And that was the origin of Ian the Computer Scientist. <laughs> Sounds like a great show. <laughs> do your parents know what to do with you? They did not. So my parents are actually uh, comedy writers. So they're screenwriters. Um, they've worked on a variety of TV shows, and that's where I like to think I got my sense of humor from. And uh, I used to, growing up, I was their tech support. I would help get the printer working and the computer working and all of that. So definitely kind of the, uh, the, the different one in the family. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so so as I warned you before, you know, before we really dig into the you know the heart of being a a mission driven entrepreneur, and I'm, you know, I, I personally I've I've followed the the growth and the trajectory of Synapse for a while now, so I'm really I'm really digging the opportunity to kind of dig into it. Um, let Let's start off with something humorous. I mean, it, you know, we'll we'll take a break from the seriousness of of growing companies and and. Um, Pitch us something, something funny. Well, I'll tell you, uh, funny is one way of describing it. I think in retrospect, this was a funny story. In the moment, I uh, literally thought everything was going to burn to the ground, but I think it's a good story to start with. So um, I remember uh, waking up one morning and uh, woke up to a flurry of emails. And at that time, we had just installed our AI system at one of the first uh, uh, airports to adapt it. And this was actually over in Japan. And at the time, um, we were building everything completely from scratch. So, you know, you think artificial intelligence, you think it's purely software. But one of the things that we very quickly learned was in order to connect our software to these security and defense systems that are already in place at checkpoints around the world, you actually need a fair bit of hardware for everything to connect together. There's no simple APIs that are pre-built. You can't just host a cloud solution because nothing can be cloud connected. We needed to build a physical computer computer with graphic processing units, GPUs in it, that would run our AI code and display that to the operators who are using our AI system. So we had handmade a computer um, in our home office in Palo Alto, shipped it all the way to Japan, and had um, two of my co-founders and one of our employees at that time living not just in Japan, but effectively living in the airport terminal next to our computer, (laughs) next to the x-ray machine. Um, That was the glory days, as they call it, of Synapse, where, uh, you know, you really got to be up close and personal with the technology, see it in use. 
And I remember there was this this morning, um, everything had been running fine for a few weeks, and all of a sudden our system would start up, it would be running, and it would die all of a sudden. And it would then restart itself without any human interaction, be running, and then die a few minutes later. And we could not, for the life of us, figure out what was the problem. And it, uh, you know, we were debugging it, and we finally figured out we should look at the temperature graphs to see if things were overheating. And it turns out we were right, they were. And the GPUs that were running the AI algorithms would heat up, heat up, heat up. They'd shut themselves off before they literally would melt. The computer would shut down, they'd cool down, they'd turn themselves back on, rinse and repeat. And it was a flurry of a day trying to figure out what in the world was happening with these systems. And it turned out that um, when we built our system by hand in our uh, place in Palo Alto, uh, we decided to use a water cooling system to keep the GPUs cool. And if you use a water cooling system, you need to use distilled water so there's no impurities in the water that'll clog up kind of the solution over time. And of course, when we got to Japan, unfortunately, nobody on our team reads or speaks Japanese. So we went to the local store and asked for distilled water. In Japan, apparently, distilled water is not quite as big of a thing as it is here. So instead, we uh, didn't know what we were buying, but we bought bottled water, which is very, very different. Filled that into our water cooler, and uh, about a month into the system being in use, it started overheating and clogging up. Um, so we very quickly learned our lesson that despite in the early days us having to build a lot of our own hardware, starting out as a software company and trying to hold on to that where we would just buy, for example, a Dell piece of hardware um, from a manufacturer that knows how to make it instead of trying to make it ourselves and focusing on what we really know well, which is AI, human computer interaction and all of that is going to help our uh, company survive in the long term. So that was the last time we built our own computer. So uh, it, but you now know more about water than you ever imagined. It is the that life is of an entrepreneur <laughs> is you suddenly become an expert in things that have absolutely nothing to do with anything you imagined ever getting into simply because you ran into a problem that you know it, you know it, it, well, it's, it it's sad, but but almost it's like. Your, your company could have failed because of your inability to find clean water. That is 100% accurate. I, mean, I it, never it, thought that would be that precarious issue. some yes. days. Yes. And, and then, of course, I had to then overnight them distilled water because we still didn't know how to find distilled water in Japan. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was quite the, yes. So yes. now you I know. I think my hair started going gray at that time. <laughs> it's like DHL, UBS, and, and all kinds of other things. They're I our best friends. to ship water. Oh, yes. Yep. I probably would have been able to better to ship them a bottle of bourbon or something to get over it. But I, like, <laughs> that might have had less impurities, honestly, than the bottled water, so it might have been a good idea. Well, see, there you go. When did you know you were an entrepreneur? And then in retrospect, when did you really start down that path? So it was pretty early on. I think what happened was I got spoiled by the feeling of kind of being in control of my own destiny in a sense. And what happened was uh, at an early age, I had taught myself how to program. I uh, worked in research labs. I tried making little projects, but it really, I, I, I saw programming as essentially a tool. I didn't see it as a necessarily a path to entrepreneurship. I didn't even really see it as a career. I just saw it as something like learning to read or write, knowing how to program. And uh, in about uh, 2008, 2009, I started um for one reason or another, wanting to make uh, programs and apps on mobile phones. But back then, the iPhone was just kicking off, and the mobile phones I was making apps for were Nokia flip phones, um, which were very cool back in the day, and uh, I, I miss those days. But um, the iPhone ended up coming out, I think it was around 2009 or so, and that's when I started developing apps for the iPhone. And I thought this was a really cool piece of technology, and I wanted to make something useful. And I wanted to take this tool that I had, which was programming, and build it. So what happened was I was actually, uh, at this point I was in high school, and I was with my sister and my parents, and we were uh, shopping. Um, I, th we went to, I grew up in Los Angeles where we have these giant shopping malls with huge parking lots. And uh, like any smart person or smart family, we forgot where we parked the car. And I remember wandering around the parking lot saying, oh, was it this level? Was it the level below us? Was it the other side of the mall? We could not find the car. And I realized, wait a minute, I could use this tool, programming, to build an app on my phone that would pretty much just let me write a note to myself 
of, okay, park my car on level four, and it was on the northwest side of the mall, something like that. And that was all the app was in the early days. So I made that, and I published it on the App Store, and uh, I decided, hey, why not try charging 99 cents for this thing? And to be honest, I kind of forgot about it. And about a week later, I logged into Apple's kind of iTunes App Store platform, and I realized that uh, several uh, thousand people had paid 99 cents to download this app. And the app was, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, embarrassing. Um, uh, a user interface, uh, I made it in Microsoft Paint. So oh, it, it, if you just process that for a second, that means I programmed it on a uh, Apple computer. Um, and then I didn't know how to design graphics. So I went back to my old Windows desktop, opened Microsoft Paint to make yeah. the image for the user interface. Uh, somehow on a USB stick, transferred that to the other computer and put it was terrible. I think the one of the reviews on the app was works well, but was uh, the user interface drawn by a three year old? Um, and I was like, not too far from the truth. But um, yeah, but that that moment where I realized that I could make something and I could get paid to make it. And I could do what I wanted with that. I could make it better. I could go build something else, whatever I wanted. I, I really became spoiled by that. And I at, that was kind of the moment where I realized working for somebody else's vision or idea would be very difficult for me. And <laughs> if I were able to have a vision and an idea and could pursue it, that would be something that would be amazing. It would be an opportunity to do something that I really loved. So in between, I want to say – Balance of being like a, a tactical entrepreneur, actually on an idea and and working on something. What what do you do? What what happens to you between between those events? In, in terms of between working on something and kind of having that next idea of yeah. sorts. Yeah. Uh, uh, so one thing that um, I, I feel like could be good or bad about me is whenever I start working on something, I become rather obsessed with it, for lack of a better word. Where I really <laughs> throw myself into it to the point where there are issues because I might not see blind spots that I have. And, you know, that's why I think it's really important to have a strong founding team that rounds out everyone else's skill sets so you could see around those corners that I might have my head too down to actually notice. Um, but I really kind of dive into things full force. And, you know, it, it's been there haven't really been that many situations in my life where I'm working on something and all of a sudden overnight it just ends and I've kind of nothing to do the next day until I think about what's next. It's really kind of been a smooth transition over time, which I think I've been really lucky to have. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's really just been uh, getting lucky and finding some idea, throwing myself into it and seeing it through to whatever extent I can. And, you know, um, I think I just always have my eyes open in a sense to see what idea might be next. You're listening to the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM with Tom Dioro and Peter Newell. The Music Maker Relief Foundation works to preserve the revered musical traditions of the American South, ensuring that the musicians' voices will not be silenced by poverty or time. Music Maker brings live performances to underserved populations, guides artists in professional development and assists with bookings and tour management, and then provides monthly stipends for food, shelter, and medical care when needed. You can help by volunteering your time or donating. For more information, visit musicmaker.org. That's musicmaker, all one word, dot org. So we're talking today with Ian Cinnamon. Ian is the president and co-founder of artificial intelligence security and defense company, Synapse Technology. For more information, please visit www.synapstechnology.com. So I'm going to go back to where we just left off and, and ask you now about Synapse. You know, first, first, how the idea for Synapse hits you, because you really are at the, you know, at the time you launched the company, really at the front end of of discussing practical applications to use AI. So it kind of, where the idea came from in, and then kind of what the the trajectory has been for you over the last couple of years. So the idea really came about uh, at this point now over a decade ago. Um, not the AI aspect, but just noticing this problem space. And to rewind a little bit, um, it was about 2009, and I started working at this uh, research lab at MIT. And the research lab was really focused on this idea of understanding uh, how the human brain processes the visual world around it. 
So not thinking about technology as in AI or anything like that, not even thinking about software applications, purely focused on a biological level. How does the human brain process the visual world? And we did research in uh, quite a few different areas. One uh, relatively obvious one is uh, looking at x-rays of human bodies to try to identify cancer. Um, that's something that I think a lot of people have tried working on both on a human cognitive level but also on an AI level. Another aspect was uh, looking at satellite image data and trying to identify changes in a huge amount of data. And one example of that is if you have, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of square miles of image data, satellite image data, and you're asking a team of people to tell you what's changed and if things have changed, and you're getting that same, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of square miles of image data every day or every couple days, and you're trying to identify changes in that, that's a tremendous amount of visual data for the human brain to process. So our research lab was trying to understand and how do we better train the human brain to analyze that kind of image data? Uh, examples are, do people need more sleep? Do we need to gamify it? Do we need to add fake changes in that visual data in there to make people more attuned to noticing changes? Um, is the human brain fundamentally just not built for that kind of visual search? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Another aspect of this was, of course, looking at x-ray security checkpoints. So if you think about the x-ray machines that you'll see at an airport when you go through airport security, so in the U.S. that's run by TSA, uh, if you think about the x-ray machines that you'll see when you enter a courthouse, uh, when you enter a uh, secure office building, unfortunately in today's world, now when you enter uh, a lot of schools throughout the U.S., you have students putting their bags through these x-ray machines, walking through metal detectors. Uh, our lab was looking at, well, you have all of these x-ray machines producing, you know, think of an x-ray machine essentially as a, a special camera that's showing you an image of a bag, but not just of the outside of the bag, but the inside of the bag as well. And you're asking these human beings to stare at these images that are coming in once every few seconds. You're having them stare at them for hours and hours on end, trying to identify not if something changes, like in our satellite example, but identify is there a gun, is there a knife, is there a bomb, are there drugs, whatever it may be. And keeping in mind that in those cases, it's a relatively adversarial um, example where if you're a bad actor trying to sneak something, let's say, into a courthouse, you're probably not going to just leave your gun alone in a backpack. Yeah. You're probably going to try to conceal it and bury it. And Training humans to be attuned for that is really, really difficult. The, the example I always like to give is imagine if I hired you to stand on a street corner and tell me when you saw a car. It'd probably be pretty easy. But if I asked you to stand on that street corner and tell me when you saw a yellow Ford Mustang, a uh, specific car in color, um, you know, you might spend a couple hours before you saw that. But what if I asked you to find that car and I knew that that car would only appear once every two years, but you had to stand there eight hours a day every single day looking for that car? When that car appeared, would you be tired and fatigued? Would you be alert because your brain lights up because you finally saw it? How does the brain process it? And uh, so I worked at this research lab at MIT uh, for uh, on and off while I was studying there for about four years. And the conclusion uh, that I came to and our lab came to throughout that time was the human brain is fundamentally flawed in its ability to perform what we call sporadic visual search. And that is looking for a visual target when it appears sporadically. It's very, very difficult for humans to do that. No matter how much sleep, how much pay, training, et cetera, it's a very difficult task that I would argue is near impossible. Yet... At the same time, we have these x-ray machines, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these machines that are deployed throughout the entire world, securing our courthouses, our schools, our airports, our office buildings, our museums, and we're relying on humans to identify threats in those. And it, it creates a sense of security that might not really be there. And back when I was doing this research and we con I concluded working there in about 2013, there really wasn't a great solution. And back then, the idea was just stuck in my head as something that, wow, this is insane that it's not that nobody spent the time trying to solve it. It's the technology did not exist to make this problem space better. And that was just kind of ingrained in the back of my head uh, for quite a long time until about 2016 when 
uh, I noticed artificial intelligence started becoming uh, more and more ubiquitous. The amount of data required to build algorithms was being reduced. The cost to run an algorithm was being reduced. The number of people that understood AI was increasing. Um, at that time, I wasn't, you know, uh, I, I, I ended up studying brain and cognitive science, not computer science, so I was no expert. But um, I was able to take Andrew Ng's uh, Coursera class on AI. Um, and I felt like I had a good enough understanding to realize that AI could solve this fundamental problem that I had started looking into back in 2009. And I got really excited about it. And uh, that was the beginning of Synapse, realizing that, hey, there was this problem that I used to research that there might be a solution for. And that solution happens to be computer, computer vision and artificial intelligence. So... You know, there you are with, with suddenly this this great feeling of, yeah, I, I see a solution to a problem. How do you launch a company? I mean, that, that, that's a that, that's <laughs> this one thing to talk about it. It's a whole different story to actually do it. So, yep, that that's a great question. And uh, I, speaking of talking about it, I talked about this idea for months. I met with friends and told them about this. And I, I think what I was looking for was some kind of external validation, somebody to tell me, hey, this isn't just a cool idea. This is something you need to go work on or, you know, this solution actually makes sense. Um, I felt like I understood it enough from the problem perspective, but I didn't have enough validation from the would the solution really work at scale perspective. So I talked to a lot of friends. I talked to a lot of uh, former coworkers. I talked to a lot of people much smarter than me, and they all kind of kept validating that idea. And at one point, I was talking to a friend who happened to also be a an angel investor. And he looked at me and he said, uh, you need to stop talking about this and you need to start working on this. Um, I'm going to give you a $10,000 check. Go see if this is worth founding a company around. And I think having that conversation with him where he basically phrased it as use this initial money to go validate the problem space as opposed to saying, hey, um, you know, you need to tell me right now if this is going to work or not work. And it was, it almost gave me the flexibility to say, let me go try this out and see what'll happen. Um, got me really excited about it. So took that first check and uh, spent time trying to validate whether this idea was worth pursuing or not. Yeah, you know, and I think that what stuck with me, what you just said, and I think is, is fairly unique about you know, the mission-driven entrepreneurship space is is typically that first check gets spent on validating that the problem you think you're solving really is the problem you're working on. Is that, is that the case with you? 100% accurate. And what's funny is upon first starting the company, I remember uh, you were one of the first people I talked to about this idea way back when. And um, I think your piece of advice to me that uh, we've held very true to this day is you cannot just sell this to the government. You need to figure out how to also sell this on the commercial side and use both of them, I think you phrase it as to ping pong back and forth and build up as you go. And when we got that first check, when I got that first check and wanted to validate the idea, that was one of the core items that I wanted to test was, is there a market outside of the market that I knew? And the market that I knew happened to just be... Uh, our federal government, specifically TSA. And by the market I knew, I had never sold anything to the government. I had no, never sold anything to TSA. In fact, I didn't know anyone at that time who worked at the TSA. I knew the head of my research lab who happened to get a grant from the Department of Homeland Security to study this. That was all I knew. But I wanted to validate, one, would our government buy it or other governments? And two, were there commercial uh, buyers out there who would want sure. solutions? And took the money. Uh, I actually cold emailed um, the former head of science and technology for the Department of Homeland Security. And he replied and uh, basically encouraged me to go meet with several people um, in the Department of Homeland Security, which I did. And uh, through that process, I think one of the things that I learned and earlier we were talking about kind of the ups and downs of entrepreneurship was I remember our very first meeting with TSA. 
uh, the response was uh, not very positive. Um, it was something along the lines of, look, this, you know, algorithms and automation, it's been tried before. It's very difficult. Trust is a big factor. Um, you know, uh, maybe you should look at other areas. But and, and that was definitely a down, especially early on. But shortly thereafter, started realizing that there was a huge market outside of just government. If you think about all of the uh, x-ray machines that are owned by uh, stadiums, um, music venues, um, even uh, you know uh, cruise ships use them to scan luggage that's going on board, hotels, um, and so on. The the list is actually quite massive. And talking to some of those people and realizing that you know they had the same issues that, for example, um, airport security had, which is you know you, you have uh, people who are trying to humans who are trying to analyze the X-ray machines and identify threats, but the people who are running an X-ray machine, for example. At a uh, at Disneyland, yeah. um, they are not uh, employees who have been trained uh, for weeks on how to analyze X-ray images. They're not employees who their pension and yeah. the future yeah. of their career depends on that. They're employees who are, to be frank, probably making close to, if not minimum wage, who are looking forward to taking their smoke break a few hours later. And they are told by their boss to, hey, you know, look at this x-ray machine, make sure uh, there's no threats in there. They're not experts in explosives and firearms. And tasking them to try to catch those kinds of threats without the aid of a tool like an AI platform, I, I think it made me realize this is a problem that just... it. It's not just it needs to be solved or should be solved. It has to be solved. I'm just going to encapsulate that because, I, A, you helped me reinforce the the concept of the pursuit of a the digital twin for the problem and it helped you expand the size of the potential market and problem space that you were focused on, which I assume later on it helped you attract – uh, the capital you needed to actually go out and work on things while also uh, providing a, a much larger platform by which you get out there and test your algorithms. Because that, you know, the TSA, uh, Homeland Security thing, is, that's pretty normal. Is it trust is a major issue, and and we just don't play with new things in, in our airports. We, we really, there's a long, laborious process to get that first one in there. Um I, I'd exactly love to right. hear, you know, more about, you know, that first entry into the first airport mm-hmm. in the United States um, and how how that went for you. I mean, it, it, that the interaction, how do you convince people to believe in you enough to get that first win? Um, f- that's a great question. And for us, our you asked specifically about the United States, but getting into the United States required getting outside the United States, actually. I which... knew that was coming. <laughs> so this goes back to the story in the very beginning about Japan. And uh, what's very interesting, and I learned this kind of with that initial check, trying to really understand how products in the space are bought and sold. In the U.S., every one of the 434 commercial airports um, is uh, essentially a private company. But the uh, security is owned and operated and run by and regulated by, of course, the government. Um, Outside of the U.S., it's a very different story. Uh, There's minimum regulations that airports outside the U.S. need to meet. They could choose to adopt U.S. regulations or ECAC, which is European regulations, um, or they could define their own regulations, whatever. that's, That's fine. But the airport themselves, so they're the ones who are buying the security equipment. They're the ones who are paying the operators to run the equipment. Uh, and they just need to make sure that they're essentially paying the least amount of, po- of money possible to meet the minimum security regulations that will let them fly into the U.S. or into Europe or within their own country, whatever it may be. And once we realized that, we realized that it, that was a great sales opportunity for us because a private purchaser, a private entity, is much easier to sell to than a government agency. You don't need to have a bidding process. You could just pitch them something and they could say yes and they could cut you a check effectively. And that is exactly what happened. So uh, we, of course, realized the power of marketing in the space. So we put up a uh, website uh, that doesn't look too different from our website today. And uh, we started just trying to kind of network and reach out to people and refer them to our website. And of course, our website didn't 
uh, paint the story of what our product was back in 2016-17. It painted a picture of what we want the product to be like, which happens to be what our product is today, which is very exciting. And one of the people we got in touch with was a systems integrator in Japan, and he happened to be well-connected to Narita Airport, which is uh, the largest international airport in Japan, and got me a meeting there. So flew to Japan, took the meeting, and uh, we we're I was personally warned by the system integrator before the meeting that uh, in Japanese business culture, traditionally, decisions are not made very quickly, and it might take a little bit of time to hear back on whether or not they want to do a pilot with us. And that was perfect because at, this was now um, about December 2017. At that time, we had built a rudimentary AI algorithm, but the product was still in its very nascent stages. We obviously had never deployed it anywhere before. It was more of an R&D project. And I was hoping that the uh, airport would say, great, let's go ahead and pay for a pilot and go ahead and install it in three months or something like that. The airport came back within 24 hours and said, can you install it? I remember the meeting was, I think, <laughs> December 16th. They said, can you install it before Christmas? Ouch. And <laughs> uh, the answer was no. Uh, that was that would have been physically impossible. But we were able to push back and agree to install it in, uh, in March. Um, so we went ahead and installed it in March of 2018 wow. for them. And they paid for it, which was uh, in our first check in the door. Um, and, of course, uh, that... You know, that was when we built the hardware ourselves and we had the, you know, water cooler issue, but that was all resolved and we got it working and we got it working to the point where um, we got the operators who were using the system to start advocating on behalf of the system and they started really liking it and they wanted it to stay there. And we thought, OK, we now have our first essentially pilot program installed. We're getting some really positive feedback from those customers. What do we do with that positive feedback? Yep. And for us, we always, and it still is and continue to will be, the holy grail of where we want to install this system is one day we would love for this to be installed at every single airport around the world. But the biggest chunk of those airports is honestly in the U.S. in terms of yep. willingness to pay a single purchaser, which is, you know, if TSA wanted, they could pay for this and deploy this to every single one of their airports essentially overnight. So, of course, we decided to approach the TSA, who we'd have been talking to throughout this whole time, and say, hey, look, um, we have had a really successful pilot in Japan. Uh, it doesn't affect uh, operations. It, you know, We have data to show it increases security, not decreases security. We would love to install this in a U.S. airport. And I remember we, we talked about this for several months with the government, and the issue was, in general, just to install something, to get paid for it. It's it's a process, and it's a process that, again, we had never sold anything to any government. Our sale in Japan was to a private company. It was a process that we weren't, to be frank, equipped to go through, and it was a process that was super intimidating. So we ended up using, uh, in our discussions with uh, the government, using the F word, um, which was uh, super powerful and uh, let us install. And, of course, the F word here is free. Um, I don't know what you're thinking, but that, that's that's the magic word. No, I'm and, following you. <laughs> so we offered to go ahead and install it as a pilot, as a proof of concept. And we said if we could install this as a demonstration. You sign a CRADA with the government. and so Correct. Will, exactly. Yeah. So we signed a CRADA. We got some great lawyers to help us. And we installed this as a demonstration. And the goal of that demonstration, because we realized that selling, getting a huge contract, for example, with the TSA, is not something that happens overnight. That's It's the long game. You want to do that over a period of time. You want to really get close with the, the right officials in the government so they understand the benefits of the technology. I mean, in you know, in anyone's defense, at that time, we were a company with just literally five employees who were trying to install this uh, in this very secure facility. And airports, courthouses, they're not playgrounds, right? Unlike other technology companies, you can't just experiment there. It needs to work and people's lives rely on it. So it's really important. So it's very important in my mind to build a strong relationship over time so people understand that you're an upstanding company, you're going to take this seriously, you're thinking about the right things. Yeah. So we were able to install it uh, for free as part of a demonstration. And that then, uh, that's really at that point when we first installed in a U.S. airport is when things really kicked off because we could then refer back to that installation and kind of ping pong back and forth between the private and the public sector. This is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM with Tom Duro and Pete Newell. 
Operation USA helps communities across the nation and around the world deal with disasters such as hurricane devastation, disease, and poverty by providing privately funded relief and other aid. The organization's philosophy is to offer material and financial assistance to grassroots organizations that can help with sustainable development, education, and health services. More than 97% of the money donated to Operation USA goes to its programs. If you'd like to donate, please visit opusa.org. We're talking today with Ian Cinnamon, president and co-founder of Artificial Intelligence Security and Defense Company, Synapse Technology. For more information, feel free to visit synapsetechnology.com. Again, synapsetechnology.com. Ian, at what other point did you feel that you validated, we're going back a little bit, uh, going ahead with your company? Was there a point... Or a person that you kind of went, hey, you know, I'm going to go with this. So I have to say there were a couple moments and I feel like it grew over time more and more. So, of course, with that very first check in the door and having those conversations, um, th- that was that made me feel like, OK, I need to go raise more money for this. So we need to install this. And, you know, one of the big questions was always not just can we validate the problem space, but will the technology actually work? Um, and. I think that the next big moment was really when the executives of the Japanese airport responded so quickly after that initial meeting to say, yes, we want a pilot. It was clearly something that they they loved the idea of what we wanted to build and they wanted to help us get there. And realizing and talking to them that we might not have it all figured out immediately, but they loved the idea that this product would evolve over time was something really powerful. And one example of that that I think for me really validated things was we launched the product and our very first launch was in Japan. And it the only uh, item that we were detecting at that time uh, were firearms. And in Japan, uh, firearms are exceedingly rare. Um, I, I can't even begin to describe how rare they are. Um, unlike in the U.S., where you know you might, I think over the course of a year, TSA TSA publishes this, but I think it's around there uh, five thousand firearms that are discovered. So you know you could then do the math and try to think about how many are not discovered. Um, in Japan, uh, I think it's maybe once a decade a firearm is discovered. It's, it's some crazy statistic like that. Um, they're just not really big in that country. So of course, when we launched a product, we realized that well. How much value are we really going to add besides adding that extra layer of security? Because there's not going to be any firearms that are going to be spotted. We very quickly then adapted it to knives. And there's a lot of people carry knives on them. Uh, So that was something where we started adding value. But where we really started adding value is we realized that in uh, Japanese aviation, you could bring one cigarette lighter onto an airplane, but you are not allowed to bring two or more. The logic behind that, it's it's the rule, so we had to help them enforce that. Um, and uh, so what we did was we built an AI algorithm to automatically detect cigarette lighters. We adapted the algorithm. It took us about – I remember I went to um, – at that point, we were uh, – our office was in a house in Palo Alto. Uh, I drove to a local liquor store and said, I need one of every type of lighter that you have. And we took it to our x-ray machine and we just started scanning lighters again and again and again. Um, and we got a ton of training data and we built an algorithm. And I, I think it was about uh, within two weeks, we flew back to Japan, updated the system and started detecting cigarette lighters. And that was the moment where the x-ray operators turned to us and they said, look, we never see guns. We see knives every now and then. But cigarette lighters, not only are does everyone or almost everyone have a cigarette lighter on them, they're almost impossible to see under x-ray because they're plastic, they're super tiny, the metal components are really small on them. And they said, your product makes me no longer want to quit my job. Wow. That was the line. I remember the x-ray operator. His name was Ken. And uh, he he was incredible. He would just get so excited by the release of this cigarette lighter detection. And I just thought, wow, that is true validation that we are now helping people do their job better. We're helping keep people in their job. Churn is going down. We're going to save them money. And then it was really a matter of, well, what other items can we add over time that will have that same effect? So I was going to ask you, you know, how's the relationship with the the actual agents now changed? Are are they coming to you now saying, well, because you can find these other five things, here's another thing that that we're missing or that is, has it changed over time? It's 
it's evolved over time. Okay. Um, I think, you know, in the beginning, I will say the first reaction was uh, incredible skepticism. And the reason for that is historically over the years, this idea of can we automate the detection of certain threats in yeah. these X-ray machines is not a new idea. It's been tried for years and years, just not with AI. And it was tried with rules-based algorithms. And that fell essentially flat on its face to the point where major contracts were lost. Uh, you know, it, it was just a bad situation. So us going in there again and saying, hey, we have algorithms, but you'll like them. They were skeptical. Uh, I think some operators at different uh, checkpoints ask questions like, oh, are you monitoring me on the job? Are you making sure that I'm paying attention? Things like that. Um, I think over time we were able to earn trust to help them understand right. that, no, we're not monitoring you. In fact, we're going to make you like your job. If anything, it's going to be that you're going to be happy that we're here. And I think now people realize that. Yeah. Um, I think one of the big challenges that we face every day, though, is this idea of trust. Um, and, you know, if you I like to compare this to self-driving cars a little bit um, in the sense of if you have a self-driving car and it's going down the highway and it's able to perceive an accident is going to happen and veer away or veer into a different lane and you're in that car and you see that happen, your reaction is, okay, the car did a good job, like, fine. But And, and that might have been an accident that you could have never avoided. If you're in a self-driving car and you're going in a cul-de-sac and it gets stuck and it's going in circles for hours, you're looking at that car and you're saying, well, I can't trust that thing. I'm not, yeah. I'm not. And the fundamental difference there is between what a human would be able to do and what a machine is able to do. So I want to back you out just a little bit and kind of ask you, you know, your impression on AI as general and I... I'll talk first about the kind of the relationships of, you know, the I call it the the person in the loop of uh, building algorithms and establishing relationship and trust in those things. And I'll take you back to the car example. It, you know, for instance, um, if if I'm driving in a car and my wife's sitting next to me and I inadvertently tap the brakes accidentally or something, I may get a cross-eyed look, but she doesn't stop trusting me. <laughs> if I'm in a self-driving car and it accidentally taps the brakes, my trust level bottoms out in a nanosecond. And, and it's not because it's right or wrong, but because you've lost the, um, you know, some type of connection with, you know, the trust over time. From an AI perspective, both in terms of, of getting the users to actually provide you things, how, how do you think that's changing over t now versus where you were, you know, three years ago? So, when we first started developing algorithms, the idea, it was very simplistic. The idea was we're going to monitor our own performance based on can we detect this gun or can we not detect this gun? What's the false alarm rate? And essentially with that, you build a rock curve and you could pick a point where you balance the false alarm rate with the detection. And we kept it very simple. And we had incidents that occurred that were incredibly similar to what you're describing. So, for example, we would uh, a, a passenger's bag would go through an x-ray machine. And our screen would light up and say, we see a gun. And we were highlighting on a pair of high-heeled shoes. Super obvious that it's not a gun. Didn't These aren't high-heeled shoes that looked anything like a gun. Very, very. And the operators looked at us and said, how can we trust the system if this happens? So what we started doing is, you know, we realized that any system is going to have a certain false alarm rate. But if in the heuristics for how you tune and build the algorithm, you don't just say a binary, it was right or wrong, but you add in kind of a severity level or a trust level where you say, okay, this is wrong, but this is a really bad kind of wrong. Or this is right, and it was a really good kind of right. And you start factoring that in. We're able to build algorithms that uh, better emulate how humans will actually perform. And I think that's going to be one of the key things with trust in AI. It's not just how good is the algorithm, but it's how similar is the algorithm when it misses to what a human would miss or how, you know, it, the inverse is also true in that sense. And how it's reported back. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's amazing. Um, let, let's talk about Synapse a little bit and where the company is today versus, you know, your growth as, as an entrepreneur, CEO, founder. And, and I'm really looking for the, the flashes of, of brightness, you know, over time. Um, what were you surprised about? I mean, personally, emotionally, from a business standpoint, over, you know, now four or five years? I have to say, I think the most surprising thing are just 
you know, everybody talks about startups are a roller coaster and there are ups and downs throughout it. And that is certainly true. And of course, you hope that uh, the the midpoint of that or the overall trend line is going upwards. And I think what I find, and I, I kind of knew that getting into this where, you know, this is really the first time where I had, you know, now a set of employees and co-founders and, you know, real VC investors who care about it. Just, you know, you know I like to think as hopefully as much as I care about it. And um, seeing that these ups and downs, it wasn't, and oh, this would be a great month where we closed a lot of contracts and this was great. But the ups and the downs would occur on a you know minute by minute or hour by hour level where you get an email saying, oh, great, this person wants a meeting. Oh, that's amazing. Or this person canceled or, oh, this contract has terms we don't like. And just the ups and downs on a given day. I think are just uh, something that people really don't talk about that often. And I think what's hard is uh, for both me and my co-founders, we all care about solving this problem so much. We are incredibly emotionally tied to the success or failure of this, Um, which I think is an amazing thing. But at the same time, uh, emotionally, it's it's, a roller coaster. How do you deal with it? How do you how do you deal with it if if you've even found or discovered a way to to minimize it? I, I think honestly one of the key things is having a team of people around you that are not the exact same as you. So I'm lucky to have, you know, our uh, we have there's three co founders, there's three of us total, and we are all, you know, similar in the sense of we all want to accomplish this mission. I, I, we're all very mission driven in that sense. We all believe in solving this problem. But in terms of individual personalities and how we handle things, we're quite different. And I think that is one of the best things I can ask for. So there might be a situation where, you know, I'm fighting for this one contract and, you know, it doesn't quite go as planned. I could turn to one of my co-founders and say, oh, I'm really bummed that this is happening or this. And they'd say, well, look at it. This is how I see it. Or this is in my branch of the business. This is actually going well. And having that really balances it out. I think uh, it's shocking how hard it is to kind of uh, have people who are not in the trenches with you understand kind of the micro ups and downs. I think people understand the macro ups and downs, like overall things are going well or not well, but it's hard to talk to anybody unless they're really in the trench seeing the ups and downs on a minute by minute basis like you are. Pete, how do you uh, how do you deal with that? Even out from a personal and professional that that uh, that extreme up and down. You know, and it's different today than it used to be. And I go back to the revenue thing. You know, one of the things that at first I'm blessed that, that Steve Blank has been such a good friend and, and such a great mentor. Um, but, you know, several years ago, Steve pointed out to me that it was a mistake to look at revenue on a, a daily, weekly, or, or monthly basis. And, you know, at that time, I knew um, income, revenue, expenses, everything to, to the, the hair's breadth on a daily basis in terms of, of BM and T. Um, but what I, what he pointed out and what I, I came to realize is that was getting in the way of my willingness to accept risk. Um, and one is having that self-confidence that even though you're going to have a month that goes into the red, you may even have a couple. If, if at the end of the quarter or the next month you're back in the black, it was all worth it. And it, it took a long time for me to step back from that. And, you know, it wasn't until you know, we brought in, you know, a, a, a vice president for business ops, essentially a CFO, who took on a lot of that stuff that I was able to step back from the nitty gritty. Now I'll tell you, I, I look at it on an annual basis. I, I look at, you know, investment levels and, and the things we're able to do with uh, that investment capital to actually help, um, grow the environment and other things and I'm less concerned about the, the day-to-day thing. So I, I will tell you in some days that act alone did more to relieve my stress level and free up my brain power to do the things I'm really good at than anything I've ever done. Um, and it took me a long time to realize that that's where it happened. Um, How long did it take if you if you can quantify a time frame? Like it took a year or two before me to really I, get, I think it, get it, it emotionally. You know, from the day Steve thumped me um, in one of our sessions about it. Uh, it probably took me uh, a year, year and a half to finally divorce myself from it. But, but that's part of the part of the growth with it. I, I think that the, 
uh, in spot on the discussion on, on having um, amongst the founders uh, diversity of background, thoughts, and, and approaches. And I think that's been hugely beneficial to me because we, you know, the the founders and essentially the senior leadership of BMT is we we are so f- flipping different than <laughs> you know. I, and I think we can fight like cats and dogs. Um, but it's never disrespectful. It's never detrimental. It's, um, and when one of us is down, there are at least two or three others that are up. And it just, it works that way. I pity the person that, that is a single founder of a company. I, I think that's, that's really just hard. It's incredible. Yeah. I, I yeah. could imagine that would be incredibly difficult. <laughs> don't, do it. don't do it. Yeah, absolutely. Don't. Absolutely. I think the, you know, before, before we close out of here and, and I could keep doing this for hours with you. First time, um, I'm thankful that you've taken on, you know, from a technology standpoint, what you have is, you know, because we're all victims of passing through airports and there is a lot of discomfort with, uh, you know, simply relying on human beings looking at pictures to, to do things. But um, I, I wanted to, you know, ask you just a short response. You know, your advice to somebody trying to break into the AI world as a founder, what, what would you tell them that they need to focus on? I think... Going as vertical and deep as possible is key and trying to identify a narrow problem space that might not be sexy and cool, but it's something that, you know, if you really look, it has to be solved and it might not be the coolest thing in the world, but I I really think that's how to build a great AI company. I think the approach that some people take in going very horizontal and trying out, you know, AI platforms for a bunch of different things. The technology just isn't there yet. And going really vertical and narrow and focusing uh, in today's world is key. Excellent. Ian, it's been an honor and exciting to have you here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast. Our guest today has been Ian Cinnamon. Ian is president and co-founder of artificial intelligence security and defense company Synapse Technology. Ian started programming in Java at age seven or nine. He published a programming textbook at 16 and developed best-selling iPhone apps. Then he founded Synapse Technology, a startup that uses artificial intelligence, again, to help security checkpoint screening systems detect weapons. This technology is currently being used in courthouses, office buildings, schools, and airports around the world. For more information, feel free to visit synapsetechnology.com. Again, that's synapsetechnology.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another mission-driven entrepreneur, thought leader, or game changer committed to smart ideas, innovation, and getting out of the building. I'm Tom DiOro. Pete? And I'm Pete Newell. The Innovators Radio Show and Podcast is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location. The recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Lexi Nealon. And the executive producers and hosts of the innovators are Tom DiIorio and yours truly, Pete Newell. If you wish to contact us at our email address, it's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. And again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu.